it has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. Foundations are such an essential part of the building component. In places like San Francisco, for example, where there are frequent earthquakes, they have developed foundation systems that are able to withstand the pressures of an earthquake so buildings still stay upright because they've been founded on a strong foundation that will not wither under pressure. In the Christian life, in the spiritual life, how can we be built in such a way that we won't wither under the pressure and the attacks of the devil? You know, the Bible says we're living in the end of time. The Bible also says that the devil is roaming about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So it should be with utmost importance that we establish a solid foundation so we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. As we've been talking about foundations, I've had with me guest Pastor Carl Satalbasides. Pastor Carl, I want to welcome you back to It Is Written Canada. So happy that you're here with us. Thank you, Chris. Now, for those of you who are watching for the first time with Pastor Carl, Pastor Carl's been a pastor for 18 years. The last five years, he's taught at the collegiate level and about to complete a PhD dissertation. So pretty soon we'll be calling you Dr. Carl. I don't know that many of your students are ready to call you Dr. Satalbasides. <laughs> now, where we left off at the last show we, is we were asking the question, fundamentally, why don't we hear more people teaching, more people preaching about the sanctuary? And in particular, we're going to talk about history in just a moment, but in particular, are there any Bible verses that help us understand why it is we simply just don't hear much about the sanctuary? Yes, Chris, there are. We're going to go to a text in Daniel 8, and then we'll go later to Revelation 13. You know, the devil isn't very wise, but he's smart and he knows where to attack. And he recognizes that the sanctuary is the framework. It provides the system and guidance for, in order to help us to understand God, to understand how we're saved, to understand how we worship, to understand how we should get along with one another and ethical decisions that we have to make. And even the process toward unity or what some may refer to as ecumenism. And uh, in the, the Old Testament uh, sanctuary, everything revolved around that. All Israelite life was gathered around that. And just to review, we've been discovering that even in the Old Testament sanctuary, everything was oriented <coughs> and geared toward the heavenly. And then we discussed Hebrews chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 1 and 2, where you have all these, and Revelation 4 and 5 and others, where you have all this rich imagery about the sanctuary and heaven. And so that, has, that view of the heavenly sanctuary has been really eclipsed. And there are real reasons that the Bible points to as to, as to how this went about happening. So just to pick it back up. And, and we're going to go, we'll go right here to Daniel 8, but something I think you and I were talking uh, before the show started, and I think it's something important that we need to point out because there may be somebody listening who has heard someone say, 
You know, the Old Testament sanctuary actually is just a copy or looks just like other ancient pagan sanctuaries or temples. Now, we have established very clearly, the Bible says the sanctuary in heaven has existed forever, since the beginning of time. And so I asked you the question, could it be that the Hebrew sanctuary, while maybe coming after some of those pagan sanctuaries, the Hebrew sanctuary is actually not a copy of those pagan sanctuaries, but rather those pagan sanctuaries are a counterfeit to the true sanctuary. What do you think about that? You know, but just before we go to Daniel, why don't we just go to a book over Ezekiel chapter 28. Sounds good. And um, in Ezekiel chapter 28, it talks about the rise, or it actually explains the rebellion of Lucifer. Okay. And in verse 14, it says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Now, there are two things in verse 14 that point to the heavenly sanctuary. Him is the anointed cherub, and in the sanctuary in Solomon's temple, you actually have four of them in 1 Kings 6, 23 to 28. And then he's in the midst of the stones of fire in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You have the living creatures that are in the midst of the stones of fire, reminiscent of Revelation 4 and 5 and the living creatures that are there. So it's interesting that you, that you make the point that these other pagan temples are actually counterfeits. And, and I think this text kind of explains why. It tells us that uh, Satan, Lucifer, was one of these covering cherubs. And of course, he would have firsthand knowledge and firsthand experience about the realities of the heavenly sanctuary. And uh, one of the best things he can do then is to make counterfeits to make it look and appear as if all these pagan temples are really... Uh, you know, resembling the heavenly, but yet he can't quite do that. He can't make them an exact duplicate without ruining his own mission and his own purpose. That's right. And so he will go ahead and then modify them. And this, and then some uh, critical scholars that don't really believe that the Bible is inspired and that we can't use one text in order to illuminate another, they'll pick up on that and say, well, hey, the Hebrews really got this idea from all the surrounding nations, when in fact, as your question really alludes to, Hey, there was an arch enemy and he knew the plans and he was able to counterfeit this. Absolutely. And now to our viewer, if you are saying, who is this arch enemy? Who is Lucifer? Who is Satan? You can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash IIW Canada. There you can look up two different series, Noah, the real story or Star Wars. In both of those, we trace the history of rebellion of this once angel, now turned arch deceiver, once known as Lucifer, now known as Satan. So Pastor Carl, very clear, and I wanted to point that out because what we are seeing is we are seeing counterfeits, and it makes sense. The devil was in heaven at one time. He would have known the layout of the sanctuary and hidden his best attempt to make religions that actually worship him. He lays out this sanctuary system that is a false or counterfeit. But we have something else going on here that we don't hear about the sanctuary very much. We actually see in the book of Daniel that the sanctuary is trampled. Yes. Let's talk about that and then we'll jump to Revelation 13. All right. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 8. And we'll pick it up at verse, uh, at verse 8. 
it says, therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. And this is the kingdom of Greece, this male goat. Yes. He was strong, and the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So Alexander's empire is broken, and it uh, goes to uh, the four uh, winds of heaven. And it says, out of one of them came forth a little horn which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. And so out of one of these horns, and out of one of the directions of the compass at the same time, this little horn would arise. And uh, there's a book by, uh, his name is Edwin de Kock, brilliant South African scholar, who traced the close relationship between the Greeks and the Romans. Okay. He traced it historically, but also prophetically. And, and I'm not going to bombard our audience with a whole bunch of texts establishing this. But here in Daniel chapter 8, this is basically a Grecian horn. Uh, Alexander's a Grecian king, and his empire splits up into four, and so these are four Grecian empires, and then the little horn would grow up out of one of those empires, and that happened to actually be the empire of the Western, the Western Greeks okay. in Italy, right. which was really the cradle of, of Greek philosophy. You have philosophers like Parmenides and like Pythagoras, and the more famous ones then who assumed some of their, their teachings were like Plato and Aristotle. Okay. And so there you have the development of Greek thinking. And um, so how did Greek thinking basically affect the sanctuary? Well, just before we get to that point, let's look at one of the activities of the little horn in verse 11. Okay. It says, He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Mm -hmm. Now, we've discussed the fact that there are earthly sanctuaries, the yes. earthly tent and uh, the temple structure, That's right. but that also there's a sanctuary in heaven. So That's the right. question is, well, this casting down, which one does it refer to? Well, in verse 14, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. If we apply the year-day principle, which is a principle that has been well-known by biblical scholars uh, employed through, uh, with all the Reformation fathers as well, if we employ that, we're not looking for a cleansing of any earthly sanctuary. That's right. That will be 2,300 years into the future. That's right. So we're talking about the, the cleansing of a, of, a, of a heavenly sanctuary. We're talking about the fact that when it says the place of his sanctuary was cast down, what it really means is the instrumental role that the sanctuary would play would be completely eclipsed. So the place of his sanctuary being cast down. In Psalm 97 verse 2, it links the place of God's sanctuary with God's throne and that righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne. Yes. Uh, and so this is an attack on the heavenly sanctuary. Well, how exactly do they do that? I mean, the little horn can't fly up into heaven and wrench the angel the one, you know, all the angels off their posts and then right. wrestle God himself. Right. This is obviously speaking in metaphorical terms when it mm -hmm. talks about casting down his place. Yes. So this is a casting down of the systematic role and nature of the sanctuary, that it would no longer be the lens through which God's people would then understand who God was, his character, or how to be saved, or how to worship, or how to make ethical decisions, and so forth and so on. Right. That would be completely eclipsed. And they did that through, um, the Greeks thought that ultimate reality was, was, was outside of time and space. And what, what they mean by that, they call it timelessness. Okay. And in timelessness, there is no past, there is no present, there is no future. There is no succession of time. So there's a complete lack and incompatibility of ultimate reality with time and space. 
Okay. Now let's unpack that just a little bit because there might be somebody watching saying, whoa, I just kind of feel like the train went going by there. So, yes. So let us be clear. Now you use the word lens. So I'm going to yes. use a little analogy. You know, almost all of us have been to the eye doctor at some point in our life. Yes. And as we go to the eye doctor, the eye doctor puts that little uh, device up and then they're trying to find the right prescription for you. And they'll go, number one, number two, number one. Number two, and as they're flipping that, one is a little out of focus, one is in focus. The sanctuary, if we can take that analogy, is like the lens that makes everything crystal clear. The little horn power, the cradle of philosophy, the cradle of, of really modern philosophy, there in the Western Greek Empire, which was actually in Italy, gives rise to a new system of interpretation, a new lens, using that same analogy, that when you flip the lens, everything is blurred. However, in order to attempt to bring some crystallizing of the blurring, the explanation is that, oh, things aren't really blurry. They may appear blurry, but it's not really blurry. Mm -hmm. And in that context. Let's talk about this timelessness now a little bit to help it really be concrete for the viewer, for the listener today. What do you mean by that, the timelessness? How is that in opposition to the sanctuary? Okay, very good. Um, and it's a hard concept kind of to grasp. You know, you know what my wife tells me? She tells me, you know, when I have to study all this philosophy, because it's hard to study systematic theology without studying philosophy. Sure. And so when we head into all this, she says, you know, you're not living in the real world. <laughs> and most of the time she's correct. But it, I tell you what, it has a massive impact on Christianity and the real world. Okay. Uh, and it usually takes me a few sessions in class in order to try to break it down. So I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to do my best. Um, it, uh, Socrates was having these, these debates with the sophists. Okay. And that means the wise ones. Yes. And the sophists were relativists, which, which meant that, you know, they believed that you could make anything, anything you want. Uh, you know, this, the truth could be black today and then white tomorrow. Got it. And so... Kind of the idea of what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me. Yes. Relativism. Okay. Correct. Complete All right. relativism. And, and Socrates, who was really working and assuming the, the insights of Parmenides and, and uh, Pythagoras, was saying, no, there is a truth that doesn't change. Okay. And so, and he based that on the immortality of the soul which was then based on this idea that ultimate reality has no time and no space. Okay. That was considered unchangeable. So there's no such thing in ultimate reality as there's a past, there's a present, there's a future. That doesn't exist anymore. And that ended up being the template from which the early church, the medieval church began to understand who God was. So when the Bible says God is unchangeable, they say, uh, they interpret that to mean that he actually doesn't interact with his creation mm -hmm. because that would lessen his perfection. Got it. Okay. So timeless me timelessness means the incompatibility of time and space with ultimate reality because there is no time and space. And that stands in direct opposition to the sanctuary because the sanctuary is a real place. Correct. That exists in real time. Now that time has been forever since the beginning. But where the sanctuary, actually the very function of the sanctuary itself, as outlined in Exodus 25, 8 is, God wants the sanctuary to be there because he wants to dwell 
amongst us. And so you have the rise of philosophy, which is essentially saying God's timelessness is actually his lack of desire or lack of intent to interact personally with his beings because there is no reality, so to speak. It's, it's, it's impossible for him to do that, in other words. Whereas the biblical framework of the sanctuary, that lens that brings everything crystal clear, is that God wants to dwell among us, God wants to relate with us, mm -hmm. and God wants to save us, and God wants to take us to a real heaven where we would have a real home mm -hmm. with him where he sits on the throne in the real sanctuary. Yeah. Am I, am I, am I yes, kind of summarizing that yeah. to help us out here? Yeah, and, and that we're actually doing real things. Yes. Um, we're not inhibited by the same things that inhibit us here and now, but we're actually doing real things. And, you know, that brought me to my conversion experience, actually. Uh, and I didn't really have a lot of Bible instruction growing up, but the, the contemporary teaching about heaven is that, well, you're just going to be kind of like on puffy clouds playing harps for all the ceaseless ages of eternity. And as a young man of 21 and 22 years old... Yep. That wasn't very appealing. No, <laughs> it's like, no. well, who would, want to, who would want to go there? But when you talk about the fact that in heaven, we're not only going to see Christ and see the Father face to face, but have, uh, but have association with angels to see the vastness of God's handiwork, doing real things. And so uh, these ideas are, are very pervasive. We're, we're just kind of touching on the, sure. the consequences of some of them right, right yes. here. But yes, if, if the Greek idea is true, it changes everything. It changes how we view God. It changes how we view ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. um, it changes how we're saved. It changes the methods that we use for worship. And the, and the whole thing just snowballs after that. So we're continuing to dwell on this question. Why don't we hear much about it? Uh, Carl, are there any other texts that might help us in this understanding of how the sanctuary has been cast down? Something in the book of Revelation that might uh, give us a little clue in as to what has happened. Yes, let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. Okay. You know, those, those books fit together like a hand in a glove, and often the themes that Daniel raises, John the Revelator goes, goes ahead and picks up on. Absolutely. And so we're in Revelation chapter 13, and um, in verse 5, it talks about this beast that comes up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. And, uh, and in verse 2, it says, The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. And this, this brings us back to Daniel chapter 7. Yes. And that leopard represents Greece. And it says his, his feet were as the feet of a bear. That represented Medo-Persia back in Daniel chapter 7. And his mouth is the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. Now notice very closely in verse 2 that the frame of this animal is the leopard. Mm-hmm. Which, which means that, although this is a, a, a Roman beast here that we're talking yes, about. Yes, yes. And again, there's a close association, not only historically, but prophetically between Greece and Rome. When the Romans took over, they were the superiors of the Greeks as far as militarily, as far as administratively. Yep. Yep. But yet, there's one place where they didn't conquer, and that was in the area of philosophy. That's right. And they ended up incorporating the Greek philosophical structure into their system. And in verse 5... We see here, it says, There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and here in uh, his tabernacle 
and them that dwell in heaven. So here's uh, stated a little differently than Daniel chapter 8, but this beast that rises up out of the sea would blaspheme the tabernacle. And he would, he would eclipse it from our view. He would, he would completely reinterpret it. He would set up his own earthly priestly system and, and duplicate that which is on heaven, uh, in heaven here on earth and at the same time eclipse our view from what's going on there in heaven. Now, you mentioned this in our last show together. So we have this. The Bible actually says there would come a time where the temple, the sanctuary, and now we have another word here introduced, the tabernacle, all of those are synonymous words, would be cast down, would be trampled underfoot. Mm-hmm. And you, use, you keep using this word eclipse. I love that because, because the, the, the sun, the sun is pervasive. The sun shines unless there is an eclipse. And so the Greek philosophy, which actually found its home in the church, the medieval church, Correct. essentially crowds out the light of the sanctuary. And something you mentioned in the last show was that in the church fathers, yeah. 37 volumes of the church fathers, we find very little, if any, mention of the sanctuary at all. No, hardly anything at all. You can punch up those terms in the search engine and you find absolutely nothing. And Revelation was the last book that was written. You're talking, what, 90, 80, 90, or, uh, 90 AD or later. Yes. And then, you know, you have some of these writings that are, uh, that are not too far from that on into the 5th, 6th, 7th century, and there's nothing. Wow. Absolutely nothing. Now, in, in these last, you know, last five minutes that we have together, Pastor Carl, what else do we see happening historically where the sanctuary is just falling off the scene? Yeah. You know, I, t- I teach a class called History of Christianity, and so I take my students through uh, a little more involved process of explaining Greek philosophy, how Daniel and Revelation foresee the rise of all this. Yes. And because philosophy is sometimes so, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's so uh, uh, oblivious and so broad and so, you know, what does this have to do with anything? Yes. And, yeah. uh, um, and so people kind of have a hard time, and so they don't study it. But what we usually find is that even church fathers, like let's say Tertullian, for example, uh, he was kind of, well, not in competition, but one of his contemporaries was, uh, was Clement from Alexandria. And Alexandria was a hotbed of Greek thinking. Yes. And Clement found no problem in amalgamating Greek philosophy in the Bible. Tertullian, on the other hand, despised that approach, completely despised it. But when it came to the issue of the Sabbath, he ended up, using Greek philosophy in order to debunk the Sabbath by claiming that there is somehow a heavenly eternal Sabbath and then a temporal Sabbath and that Jesus kept the heavenly timeless Sabbath, but he didn't keep the seventh day earthly Sabbath. And so you can, you can put your head in the sand and say you don't want to study philosophy, but you will be doomed to be affected by it. And this has been traced not only just in the early church fathers, but even in some of the Protestant reformers as well who, like Martin Luther, who called philosophy like the, like the harlot, but even still ended up using some of their systems in order to explain things that really have no basis in the Bible. And so really some of the top thinkers have been affected by these Greek views. Philo of Alexandria, a, a contemporary of mm-hmm. Jesus, who thought, again, you could amalgamate the Bible and Greek thinking. When it came to the sanctuary, he basically allegorized it away. Wow. He, he completely spiritualized it away. Uh, when it came to uh, uh, even uh, Augustine in the 5th century, 
uh, same thing happened when it came to Aquinas, uh, uh, a prominent Roman Catholic theologian in the 13th century. Again, they basically just spiritualized it away. Why? Because their concept of, of ultimate reality has no room for this kind of spatiotemporal structure in which God actually moves from place to place. There's absolutely no room for it. So, Pastor Carl, we have about two minutes left. So I'm just going to simply ask you this question. We're going to pick this up more in our next show. Is there any hope? Do we see any hope for a restoration of our own thinking because the Bible's quite clear. God exists in time. God exists in space. The sanctuary is the sanctuary. It's real. What hope do we have? Psalm chapter 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The psalmist says in verse 4 that the Lord's throne is in heaven. Even historically, Chris, as God's people were scattered from Jerusalem to Babylon and other lands because of their sins, there came a time when they would return. And when they returned, what did they begin to do? They began immediately to rebuild the sanctuary again. And so as they came out of Babylon, God had called them out of Babylon in order to rebuild the sanctuary. You mentioned something earlier uh, also in Revelation 11 verse 1, and that is after this great Babylonian uh, uh, I'm sorry, after this great disappointment yes. uh, with the Babylonian exile, so to speak, spiritually, the very next thing is rise and measure the temple of God. And that's what people began to do. And there are more and more and more people doing it today and discovering the sanctuary is the system that helps explain everything. And so as we conclude, we have hope by spending time studying the sanctuary and just like we're in the doctor's office and he flips the little switch and says, number one or number two, we can take this opportunity to choose number one and number one being building our foundation upon the sanctuary. Let's have prayer, Pastor Carl, and ask God to show us and point us in that right direction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we could turn our eyes toward heaven and know that there is a God in heaven who sits on the throne in the sanctuary, who wants to have a relationship with us and who is sending his son soon to take us home. Please help us to embrace that hope today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Dear friends, the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, desires to have a personal relationship with you. He has set a framework, a foundation, called the sanctuary to teach us about how we can have relationship with him. I want to offer you the book where God and I meet the sanctuary. This book looks closely at the sanctuary, its components, and what it means for each of us as individuals. Here's the information you need to receive today's offer. To request today's offer, just log on to www.itiswrittencanada.ca. That's www.itiswrittencanada.ca. For Canadian viewers, the offer will be sent free and postage paid. For viewers outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. That's 1-888-CALL-IIW. Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H 7V4.
Sanctuary is a real place that provides a real foundation for the troublous times in which we live. Dear friends, God is calling upon you to place your foundation on that rock. Pastor Carl, thank you so much for being here and helping us to see this more clearly. It's been great. My dear friends, I hope you enjoyed the program this week. I invite you to join us again next week. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.